I am grateful for the opportunity to bring the message from God's word this morning. My wife gave me a mug a few years back that bore this message on the outside. Old ministers never retire. They just go out to pastor. (laughs) So I am grateful this morning as a retired pastor for the opportunity to fulfill my ministry. And you'll know from God's word that uh, that is a phrase that the Apostle Paul uses with um, young Timothy. He says, be diligent to fulfill your ministry. So I'm, I'm grateful for that opportunity today. I don't know if the name Harry Emerson Fosdick rings a bell with anyone. But before he was the renowned pastor of New York's Riverside Church, He was asked to substitute for a famous preacher who was ill. And the man who introduced him went on and on about the speaker who should have been there, this famous pastor. And then he added almost as an afterthought, we are fortunate to have young Harry Fosdick in his place. So Fosdick, when he came to the pulpit, acknowledged the introduction. And then he said with a smile, I am reminded Of the time I was traveling and saw a banner spread across the main street of a small town. And it read, Annual Strawberry Festival. And then underneath was a smaller banner that said, Due to the drought, prunes will be served. (laughs) Now you are used to being treated to a strawberry festival each Sunday with Pastor Mark's preaching of God's word. And I hope that by God's enabling today that I'll be able to give you more than prunes as I stand in for him. Esther and I have felt welcomed and have benefited spiritually for the last several months as we've been worshiping with you. You may already realize it, but you are blessed to have a consistently excellent exposition of scripture week by week under Pastor Mark. And judging from comments that have been made to me over the past five years by people seeking a church with consistent, challenging Bible teaching, such a church is increasingly hard to find these days. And based on what I have seen and heard, you are blessed. I would urge you to pray for your pastor and his family intentionally and with a sense of urgency. Because no man, no man is beyond straying either doctrinally or morally. No man is beyond the temptation to soften the word of God so that he is liked and he avoids conflict. Even the Apostle Paul requested that God's people pray for him so that he might, quote, make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel so that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Ephesians 6, 19 through 20. And there are unique pressures that come to a pastor's wife and to his children. And you can rest assured that the enemy 
will seek to distract and discourage God's messenger, even through his family, if he can. So I urge you to help Pastor Mark and his family through your prayers. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, when he talked about the fact that at one point he had gotten so, so discouraged that he hoped for death. And he said, the God of resurrection is the one who lifted me. And at the very end of that text, in that scripture, he says, and your prayers have helped me. So pray for your pastor and his family intentionally and with a sense of urgency. Let's pray together right now. Father, I do thank you this morning for the opportunity that you've given to me, the great privilege of opening the word of God and teaching your people. They don't need to hear me, Lord, they need to hear you and your word. And I pray that you will enable me to speak your word in a way that is pleasing to you and that the spirit of God would take it and use it in the hearts of these, your people. May the words of my lips and the motives of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And as we come to your word today, Lord, we are all at different places. All of us need either comfort or correction. Or both. Lord, you know, and I'm grateful that you know our hearts. And people may not know us really or understand all that's going on in us, but you know us. And I just pray, oh God, that you will take your word today. And that you apply it to each one of our hearts where we need it. For comfort or correction. And may our thanks and our gratitude be to you. We thank you. And we love you. And we pray that you make our love greater. And our faith greater. In Jesus name. Amen. This morning we consider the Joseph story as recorded in Genesis 37 through 50. Now, if you're following the full course Bible reading plan in 2016, you'll finish the story of Joseph in today's readings. If you're following the locale reading guide, you will begin the story of Joseph on January the 27th and finish on February the 5th. So for some of us this morning, this message is a refresher of readings that you've done this past week. For others of us, the message is a preparation for what you will begin to read in about 10 days. And still others of us may not have chosen to use either one of those plans. So whatever is true of you today, my hope is that God will speak specifically to each of us from his word. And that when we leave this morning, we will have grown in our understanding in two very specific ways. Number one, in our understanding of the greatness of God, the greatness of God. 
And number two, in our understanding of how he has called us to take this specific passage of scripture, the Joseph story, and to live it in obedience and in faith in our lives. Now, before we consider this Joseph story, we need to fill in a huge gap. Last week, Pastor Mark unwrapped the prologue of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11, and he laid out seven snapshots of earth and mankind's earliest history. And now today, I'm preaching on chapters 37 through 50. So what is in that gap between Genesis 11 and Genesis 37? Do you recall Pastor Mark's concluding statement last week to his message on the prologue? It went something like this. Chapter 12 opens with God knocking on Abraham's door. Chapter 12 opens with God knocking on Abraham's door. Now, at this point in the Genesis account, sin has corrupted the original creation. Sin has blown up the perfection that God had created, leaving an earth that is filled with violence, broken relationships, and rebellion against God the Creator. And then in chapter 12, God sets his rescue plan in motion. And in fact, the rest of the Bible from Genesis 12 to Revelation 22 is the record of God working his plan, bringing it to a glorious and a triumphant fulfillment at the end of time, as recorded in the book of Revelation. So in chapter 12, we see God choosing Abram, later called Abraham, and establishing a covenant with him. Look at the words of Genesis 12, 1 through 3. These are the words of the covenant that God makes. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. In those final words of verse 3 is the promise that in Abraham all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that promise was fulfilled, of course, in the coming of Jesus Christ to rescue us from the penalty of our sin and the power of sin. And then from chapter 12 through chapter 36, we are shown how this Abrahamic covenant is passed from Abraham to Isaac and finally to Jacob. And then in Genesis 37, the Bible begins to focus on one person primarily, one son of Jacob, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, and then the focus on Joseph. The Joseph story records how 
the embryonic form of the nation of Israel, just about 70 people, left the pastures of Palestine and went to Egypt. And there in Egypt, after Joseph's death, this little embryonic form of 70 people grew into a great nation of about a million and a half people, it's estimated. And then, as you begin to read in the book of Exodus, it is God delivering this group of people to become the nation of Israel with the mighty ten plagues, story you're familiar with. But how did that start? It started in the story of Joseph. Now, having set the story of Joseph in its historical context, we want to turn our attention to what is the Lord saying to us through Joseph? What is he saying to us through the story of Joseph? Beyond the development and the beginning, the embryonic form, and then the the growth into the nation of Israel. What is he saying? There are a number of intriguing aspects of this record of Joseph that we could have looked at today, but I, I chose this one to focus on. Here it is. This is our focus this morning. There will be times in our lives when things get worse before they get better. There will be times in our lives when things get worse before they get better. Even though you are obeying God. Even though you may be turning your heart back to God, you will find that external circumstances may get worse before they get better. But that does not mean that God is not with you. That will be our focus. What should we do when we find ourselves in a situation where we're seeking to follow God or to come back to God and we find our external circumstances growing worse, not better? Well, let's consider the life of Joseph. It's one of the lessons that God teaches us through his life. First of all, Joseph was a man who was betrayed. Because of jealousy, Joseph's ten brothers ruthlessly plot his death. They seize him. They rip off his shepherd's coat, which was a special gift from his father to him. And they throw him into a cistern or a dry well. And then they sit down to eat a meal while they hatch the rest of their plot against Joseph. Look at these words in Genesis 42, 21. Then they said to one another, that's the ten brothers, then they said to one another, truly we are guilty concerning our brother. Because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Now, you need to understand that when these ten brothers are saying this, Joseph has been in Egypt for a number of years already. When the brothers say this, at this point later in the story, they are wrestling with the guilt of what they did to their brother. And I want you to imagine the scene that is depicted in this verse. I want you to to try to feel the emotion and picture in your mind what happened. 
Can you picture the desperation in Joseph's eyes? His brother said, we are guilty concerning our brother. We saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Can you see the desperation in Joseph's eyes? Can you hear the pleading in his voice as the 17-year-old youth asked for mercy from his brothers? And certainly, I am sure that by the time that they lifted him out of that cistern, out of that dry well, he had the hope that that was the end of the cruel joke. But Joseph found out quickly that that was not the end. Because now he saw the reality that his brothers were selling him to a group of Ishmaelites that were on their way to Egypt. And his brothers were selling him to them. What do you picture him seeing, feeling, saying? as he's bound up and tied and dragged off by these Ishmaelites and his brothers are just standing by, if not laughing and sneering, at any rate, calloused and indifferent, his own brothers. God's word says, we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us. Yet we did not listen. And so he's carried off to Egypt. And then we read in chapter 39 that once in Egypt, Joseph is now sold to another man. The Ishmaelites sell him to Potiphar. Potiphar brings him into his house. And he soon discovers the, the character and the work ethic of this young man. And, he, and the scripture says that, God real, that uh, Potiphar realized that God blessed him. And Potiphar was realizing that, that God was blessing him through Joseph. That everything in his house was prospering more. But after a while, Potiphar's wife turned her eyes on Joseph. The scripture says she tried to seduce him. Not once, but repeatedly. What did Joseph do in that situation? He did what was right. He said, no. Look at these words from Genesis 39.9. Joseph speaks these words and he says, there is no one greater in this house than I, excepting, of course, Potiphar. And he, Potiphar, has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin Against God. When faced with this repeated invitation, Joseph says no. Why? Because he fears God and he wants to honor God in his life. But I ask you, what is the result of him doing the right thing? What is the result? It's the wrath of a woman scorned. She tells bold faced lies about him. Joseph is thrown into prison where he stayed for at least two years and probably seven or eight. And can you imagine the confusion and the horror that Joseph felt 
as he was now hauled off to prison for doing right. Some things, sometimes, things will grow worse rather than better when you're seeking to do the right thing even. There was, of course, more that Joseph felt than just this confusion and and horror. God never forgot him. Look at Genesis 39, 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The statement that the Lord was with Joseph is repeated more than once in Joseph's story. So Joseph has been thrown into prison. He's been lied about. And in fact, the scripture says at two different points after this, that he has been thrown into the dungeon. But then the scripture also says that the Lord was with him. We read in chapter 40, how once this jailer had shown favor to Joseph and, and made Joseph the overseer in, in, in the prison. Scripture tells us how Joseph showed kindness to two of the prisoners. And you'll recall how he interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh's cupbearer and also of Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's baker. Both men had fallen into disfavor with the king. They had dreams, and Joseph told them what their dreams meant. And those dreams were fulfilled exactly as Joseph had predicted. Remember Joseph's words to the cupbearer after giving the cupbearer the good news that he was going to be restored to favor with the king? This is what the word of God says. Joseph says to this man, only keep me in mind. When it goes well with you, and please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For I was in fact kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing that they should have put me into this dungeon. That's what Joseph asked the cupbearer to do. Do you remember what the scripture says he did? Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So think about Joseph's life. He's a man betrayed. He's a man lied against and imprisoned unjustly. He's a man forgotten despite his kindness to others. Those things got worse before they got better. Even in the life of a man who feared and honored God. If you've read the rest of the story, you know that Joseph was also a man who was rewarded. God will not forget. He's not unjust to forget the labors done in his name, according to Hebrews 6.10. And in 1 Corinthians 15.58 is a great promise that every one of us as believers needs to emblazon on our minds, put into our hearts, What a great promise. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Here's the great promise. Knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. That is a great promise. The man 
who was a slave and bounded by the walls of a prison would one day and soon roam all over Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. I'm sure Joseph must have given up all hope of ever seeing his father again as he was in that dungeon in prison. I'm sure he gave up all hope of that. And yet the scripture tells us that the day came when he felt the hot tears of his beloved father on his face as he held the sobbing, incredulous old patriarch in his arms. Joseph was a man betrayed, a man lied against, a man imprisoned unjustly, a man forgotten despite his own kindness to other people, and ultimately a man rewarded. If you're serving Jesus Christ, if you're seeking to draw near to him, but things are going from bad to worse, it's too soon to quit. It's too soon to quit. As in Joseph's life, the day will come when you will see God's reward. Through Joseph, God teaches us invaluable lessons about what you and I need to do in times of trouble and injustice and disappointment. Because those times will come in your life. They will come. Live realistically and biblically. The Bible, God's word, tells us that this is a fallen, sin-wrecked world in which there is much evil and injustice. And followers of Jesus are not exempt from suffering and pain. Please do understand that if we will obey God's commandments and submit to the work of God's spirit in our lives, we will be spared much unnecessary pain in our lives. Many times the pain and the suffering that comes to individuals is because we have failed to keep God's commandments, failed to submit to him and his spirit. We can be spared that. But even those who, like Joseph, are keeping God's commandments and honoring God in their lives may in fact suffer injustice and evil and pain and disappointment in this world. We as believers, as followers of Jesus, have been promised a new heaven and a new earth in which perfection and justice and healing will once again be restored. The book of Revelation says that the day is coming when he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death or mourning or crying or pain for the old things are passed away. That is a promise from God to followers of Jesus. But we live in this world at this point. And it's a world in which there is heartache and injustice and evil and suffering that is pervasive. And it is through Joseph that God teaches us what to do when trouble comes and keeps coming 
and keeps coming. And things get worse before they get better. So what can we learn from Joseph's life? Number one, keep doing what you know is right before God. Even when things are going from bad to worse, keep doing what you know is right before God. Keep a clear conscience. In instructing young Timothy, the Apostle Paul told him to fight the good fight by keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and have made shipwreck of their faith. When we reject a good conscience, we can make shipwreck of our faith. God's word tells us that. And so, when hard things come and they keep coming and trouble keeps coming, keep doing what is right before God. Keep a clear conscience. And if you've lost that clear conscience, then don't believe the lie of Satan that it's done. There's no more that God will do through your life. But grab and hold fast to the promise in Hebrews chapter 1, which says that we are cleansed from the works of our past, the dead works of our past, through the blood of Christ. So this morning, if you're a person and you feel under the conviction that of, of the guilt of your failure to be faithful to the Lord, then go to the Lord, even as we were led in our worship songs this morning. Go to the Lord and find healing and forgiveness. Secondly, get to work where you are, where God has placed you. We are amazed at Joseph's resilience and his work ethic. He took what was dealt with him and he served God with excellence in those circumstances. We need to note that Joseph did not wait for his circumstances to change. While his circumstances were still bad and going from bad to worse, he served God where he was to the best of his ability and with excellence. John Phillips, in his commentary on the book of Genesis entitled Exploring Genesis, wrote these words about Corey Ten Boom. He said, who would have thought that any good thing could have come out of the notorious Ravensbrück death camp of the Nazis? Surely when she was incarcerated there as prisoner 66730, Corey Ten Boom must have wondered at her fate. Yet in that place of torment and horror, that devoted and courageous servant of the Lord Jesus decided that if she had to live in that suburb of hell, where the only means of exit for a Jew or a Jew sympathizer was up the smokestack of the crematorium, if death was to stir her in the face every day, if she must live daily with spine-chilling atrocities, if she must be subjected to indignity and intimidation, if she must be foul with vermin, whipped forever hungry, terrorized day and night, why then she would be the very best in, inmate Ravensbrook Horror Camp had ever known. She would be a Christian. And so there, in barracks number 28, she held clandestine Bible classes and taught her wretched fellow inmates 
how to face life and death with Jesus Christ. And as a result of her agony, after she was freed, God was able to open for her in later years a worldwide ministry. Her story has been told in print and on the platform. It has been made into a major film and shown in movie theaters around the world. It has thrilled and challenged and encouraged countless millions of people. Often she must have wondered why. Why, after she had risked her life so often to rescue persecuted Jews, why should God have allowed her to be piled into a boxcar with 80 other frightened human beings, packed in so tight that they could hardly breathe? Why should she be forced to endure such thirst, such unspeakable filth, such naked horror, such sorrow over the death of her weaker sister? But now she knows, through her life and ministry, Thousands upon thousands have been led to give their lives to Jesus Christ. God meant it for good. So like Joseph and like Corey Ten Boom, may we be inspired and, and motivated to work where God has placed us. Third, persevere. Joseph's ordeal lasted for 13 years. 13 years without an answer to the question, why? But when God's answer came, his reward was great. Because Joseph spent 13 years of rejection and injustice, but he spent 80 years on the throne before his death at the age of 110 but we need to remember that we can only persevere one day at a time. Rely on God for his strength for today. And then rely on God for his strength for tomorrow. Like the manna in the wilderness, we need a new gift of manna from God every day. Number one, keep doing what you know is right before God keeping a clear conscience. Number two, get to work where God has placed you. Number three, persevere one day at a time. And number four, recognize the hidden hand of God. Consider these words from commentator Kent Hughes. He says, ultimately and above all, the story of Joseph is about God working his will through the everyday events of life. There are no miracles here. God does not suspend his natural laws to make things happen. The story is about the hidden but sure way of God. God's hidden hand arranges everything without show or explanation or violating the nature of things. His power and infinitude take both the good and evil actions of Joseph's family of Pharaoh and his servants, and of passers-by, and uses their actions for good. You know, very shortly in your Bible reading, you're going to be reading about the children of Israel coming out of the land of Egypt. And what do you note there? You note miracles. God suspending laws of nature. 
God doing spectacular events in order to humble the Egyptians and for the, so they would allow the Jews to go free. But here in the story of Joseph is the hidden hand of God. You don't see him suspending the laws of nature. You don't see him performing miracles to bring relief for Joseph. It's the hidden hand of God at work in giving him favor, for example, in the eyes of the jailer. In your life, begin to look for the hidden hand of God. When Pastor Mark was preaching his Christmas message on December 20th, he made this statement as he was describing how God directed the timing of Mary and Joseph's journey to Bethlehem for the birth of Jesus. He said, God is not watching over, not only watching over, he is working in. You remember that statement? How the timing had to be just right for that census to take place so that Mary and Joseph would be there at the time so the Old Testament prophecy about the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem would be fulfilled. You see, the hidden hand of God at work. And as you continue in your Eat the Book readings this year, be looking in the rest of Scripture for not just the miraculous and the spectacular, but the hidden hand of God. You'll see it in the book of Esther, for example, where the name of God is not even mentioned. And yet you know that it's God who's setting up all of these various events in the book of Esther. The hidden hand of God. God is not just watching over. He is working in. And what was true of Mary and Joseph, Mary and Joseph was true in the Joseph story also. We see the hidden hand of God once again. God is not just watching over Joseph. He's working in Joseph and he's working for Joseph. And I believe God intends us to see that this morning in the Joseph story. God intends us to see it and to believe it about God and to expect him to be at work in all the circumstances of our lives, good or bad, to bring us to the point where he wants us to be, to know him and to be used by him. Perhaps sometime today, take a three by five card and write these two scriptures on the card. Genesis 50.20 and James 5.11. Genesis 50.20 are the words of Joseph at the very end of the Joseph story. And he says to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. And then James 5.11, we count those blessed who endured. Underline the word endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. That the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Underline the word outcome. They endured. And Job saw the outcome of the Lord's dealings with him. That the Lord is compassionate and full of mercy. Pray that the Lord would make that a conviction in your soul. That he is at work in your life. The hidden hand of God 
in your life, in your circumstances. Pray that God would make that an anchor for your life. That you're going to live with the confidence that the hidden hand of God is at work in you, just as in Joseph. C.H. Spurgeon wrote these words. When you cannot trace the hand of God, you must trust the heart of God. Joseph could not trace the hand of God and what God was doing through his life for 13 years. But he trusted God. He kept doing what was right before God. He kept depending upon God day by day. And then he saw. Then he saw the outcome of the Lord's dealing. Is God calling you this morning, perhaps, to make something right with him? Have you quit on God too soon? I know that there are situations that we all deal with, and sometimes you have to change your strategy and how you deal with it. But that's not, I'm not talking about changing a strategy. I'm talking about have you quit on God? Have you given up too soon because you didn't see things working out the way you wanted or as soon as you expected And has God spoken to you this morning through the example of Joseph? And is he calling you today to come back to him? And to submit your heart and your life under him once again. And whatever that circumstance or situation is in your life. And to come back to him. Is he calling you to work faithfully where you are now? Trusting him for today and tomorrow. And one day at a time. And finally this morning. Please consider these words of Paul Wolf. They come from his book. My God is true. Lessons I learned along cancer's dark road. Listen to these words. He God. Is ordering all things in such a way. As to lead history. To its eventual conclusion. When he will put his own greatness on display, both in the completion and the redemption of his people and in the execution of impeccable justice in the case of those who refused him. A wonderful and dreadful day is in store at the end of time. And God is ruling all of history, even down to its minute details, to get us there. We have thought this morning about the hand of God, the hidden hand of God, working in the life of one man, one individual. But this quote reminds us that God is at work not just on the individual level, but the universal level. Even when we think about the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, it is God who took Joseph to Egypt So that there in the womb of Egypt, the nation would be formed and then come out with that mighty exodus and head to the promised land. God was working a bigger agenda than just Joseph. He was working to fulfill that promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But Paul Wolf's quote reminds us That God is not only working in the nation of Israel. That he is the God of history. He is the God of the world. Of all of creation. And that a day is coming, as the quote says, when he is going to put his glory on display. 
and his greatness on display in two ways. First of all, in the completion of the redemption of his people who shall inherit the new heavens and the new earth, but also in the execution of impeccable justice. I love that phrase, impeccable justice, because God's justice will be perfect. Impeccable justice in the case of those who refused him. I think of Acts chapter 17, verses 30 through 31 which says that God is now calling all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, having given proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the proof that that day is coming, a day of judgment for the world and a day of complete redemption for God's people. We live today in a very dangerous world. I don't have to convince you of that. You read the papers, you look at the news, and every day, it seems, there is more terrorism and more violence. And despite what political leaders say, you and I know we are not safe. This world is dangerous. And this world is dangerous for our children and grandchildren because of the forces that have been set loose by the enemy in this world to corrupt their minds and their hearts and their souls. We look at Supreme Court decisions that are made and things that are happening in our own country, and we say, what what is happening to our country? We look at the threats to religious liberty and freedom in this nation. Threats to religious liberty and freedom that we have enjoyed. And we say, this is a dangerous world. That should not be our last word. Our last word should be, he is Lord. He is sovereign. And God has a plan. And he is working it out. And as Paul Wolf said, he is ruling all of history down to the minute details to get us there. That plan of God's will not be thwarted by the intense anti-God hatred and mockery of the new atheist. And it will not be thwarted by the determination of the sophisticated and the powerful of this world to build their own kingdoms. And it will not be thwarted by violent terrorism of ISIS or Boko Haram or any of their ilk. He is sovereign. He is Lord. Jesus Christ is returning, and every knee shall bow. He will accomplish his purpose. A wonderful and a dreadful day is ahead at the end of time. Are you ready for that day? Are you ready for that day so it'll be a wonderful day for you? Not a dreadful day. Not a day of dread and eternal regret. Today is the day of salvation. And God extends his grace and his mercy today through the saving work and the sustaining work of Jesus Christ. Will you receive his forgiveness?
and salvation. Consider the words in closing of Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. That is God's invitation. And his invitation is in those words that you're more familiar with. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. There is a wonderful and dreadful day that is coming. And the hand of God will make sure that we get there.